team, let's all stand together at this time as we reverence a reading with God's Word. We're going to wrap up our study in Romans chapter 8 tonight. I uh, hope to cover quite a bit of ground, and that's not because the passages couldn't uh, be covered in a lot more, or given a lot more attention, given a lot more time, uh, because they obviously can, and you'll see more of that as we go along. Uh, but this is a section of Scripture, and uh, it's one that uh, I think we need to consider as one context tonight. So just pray that I don't get bogged down anywhere, and I don't preach till 10 o'clock. Uh, I promise you I won't preach till 10 o'clock, but uh, 7 o'clock's in jeopardy. So, <laughs> no, 6.30. Man. Anyway, let's get on. <clears throat> Romans 8.37, Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's our message tonight, more than conquerors. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer you may be seated. Romans 8, we've noticed, projects us into the realm of the Spirit. It is a place where life is dominated by the presence, by the power, and the promises of God that are delivered to us through the Spirit. We've noticed that before in the book of Romans, the uh, Holy Spirit is only mentioned one time. And yet in Romans chapter 8, he's mentioned again and again and again and again and again. And his work is always in the background and al almost always in the forefront. Uh, it talks about a life then that is dominated by his power and his promises rather than by our abilities, whatever they might be. You see, the Christian life isn't difficult to live in our own power, in our own strength, or by the power of the flesh, or by the power of human resolve. It's not difficult to live by our own power, it's impossible. It's impossible. To live the Christian life by our own power. Now, because though a lot of people end up trying to do that, uh, then their life becomes just this huge question mark. And they are so uncertain then about their relationship with God. They're asking themselves the question, what's wrong with me? Why, if I'm truly saved, why then am I still struggling like this? Why are these problems mine? And they begin then maybe to even question whether they are Christians at all, whether they really have a genuine relationship with God. And wherever our relationship with God becomes a question mark, then our life is going to be dominated by fear, not by faith. And that's not the way God wants us to live. Adrian Rogers said it best. I can't improve on it. Uh, God wants our life to be, our faith to be an exclamation point, not a question mark. And uh, the God wants us to have confidence. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, we're told, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we're told that without faith it is impossible to please Him. So having that faith and confidence is incredibly important for the people of God. Our text tonight is the culmination of this great chapter, the crowning moment of the entire revelation about the work of the Spirit in us, it all comes down to these passages. The life that was dominated by the flesh, by fear, and by failure, leaves us lamenting like Paul did at the end of chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Yet the life of the Spirit of God that comes to us through Christ Jesus leaves us saying, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will give me victory? More than conquerors through him that loved us. And so I'm going to walk you through this as best I can tonight. And it begins with the identification of the truth itself in verse 28. A simple statement, but also profound. And we know, and we know, three of the sweetest words in all the Bible. And we know. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose refers then to a principle that's simply given to us as a stated fact. No longer up for discussion, not even up for debate. This is something we know. We know. No subjectivity, no passivity, no questioning. We know. An absolute fact that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But even as I say that about this glorious passage, I have to also say that this is probably one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages in the whole Bible. I've seen it quoted to people and by people in the midst of unspeakable tragedy. Well, you know, this is all good. It's going to be good. Hmm. I know it's hard to accept. I know it's hard to understand. I always like to hear this one. Well, I know there's a reason for this. You know, there's a lot of things that have happened in our lives that we don't see as good. A lot of bad things happen. And in fact, if we take Romans 8.28 and come to the conclusion that everything that is happening to us is good, we're completely ignoring the context because he has just told us what this whole discussion is about back in verse 18. Where he said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, this whole passage, as we saw when last I preached on Romans 8, is about the existence of suffering in the lives of God's people. Suffering. And so to come away as as if something then that Paul is telling us that everything that happens to us is somehow good, well, that's just ignoring the context because what he's talking about is suffering. If this were geometry, suffering would be a given. A given. The suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So the passage is given to us then under the concept of labor pains. Our suffering is a birthing process by which the glory that is in us through our faith in Jesus Christ is going to be brought forth. And it's only within that context that Romans 8.28 applies. It is the context of how our suffering 
is going to give birth to a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. It's from another passage, 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul said we don't look just at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are not seen, the things that are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things that are not seen are eternal. And our light affliction that he calls to put on one of those old-fashioned balance scales, our light affliction works in us a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The glory that is to come is not even worthy to be compared with the suffering that we are experiencing now. And it is only because that is the truth. And you do know tonight that is the truth, right? It's already been clearly established for us. It is only within that context that the truth of Romans 8.28. Can we look then at some isolated incident of tragedy or difficulty in our life and say, well, you know, this is good. Mm -mm, We can't say that. However, we can say... That every time of suffering, every time of sorrow, every time of difficulty, every single one of them that we experience in this life is another birth pain that is behind us. And like all birth pains or labor pains, one of these days it's going to bring forth. It's going to give birth. And what it's going to give birth to is that far more and exceeding weight of glory. Therefore, we know that all things are working together for good to those that love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. They work together, not any isolated thing. But all things work together. And the end result of it is going to be good. That's the establishment of the truth. Then there is the explanation of the truth in verse 29. And you see the word for in verse 29. Uh, The word for means because. And so what we have when we see that word for in verse 29 is the because. And he gives us in several statements to show us because. Why this is true. For. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There are five words that are used in this text then to explain the previous statement. That all things are working for good in the life of the believer in Christ. Our suffering does not get the last word. Because of the truth of this passage, our sufferings are working together. And they are going to bring forth something that is good. It is irrefutable. It is a statement of fact. It is going to happen. The end result is going to be good. How do we know it? God gives us five words to the Apostle Paul in this passage. And we'll look at all five of them. Uh, Foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Whom he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. 
I want to remind you, as I did in verse 28, that the context of this passage is not talking about so much our salvation, although salvation does permeate the thinking. But he's talking about our suffering. For I declare to you that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And though so many people want to look at Romans 8, 29, and 30 and, and just make it the, 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 the Magna Carta of, of the whole salvation experience, that, that's really not what it's there for. But it does give us some great truth about that from God's eternal perspective, which is why it enters into this discussion in the first place. The first word is God's foreknowledge. This comes from a word that we get our word prognosis from. A doctor considers all the information available to him and then makes the best judgment that he can. He offers a prognosis. Uh, but a doctor cannot guarantee anything about the future because he doesn't know for sure. Uh, our God does know for sure. <laughs> our God does know for sure. He, he, he never guesses about anything. He never gives us his best idea uh, God knows. And because of God's foreknowledge, we know that God knows, the, God knows everything. He knows the past, He knows the present, and He also knows the future. Because of that, God can't learn anything. God cannot forget anything. And God is never surprised by anything. And uh, one writer added this, The Holy Trinity never meets an emergency session. I like that one too. Now, I've seen it compared to a, a little boy in, in, uh, who was in his backyard, forbidden by his mother to leave, surrounded by a big wooden fence, but inside that wooden fence there was a knothole. And on this particular day, there was a parade coming by. Oh, the little boy wanted to go to parade, but he couldn't leave his yard. So he go, does the best he can. He goes up and he puts his, nigh, his eye right up to that knothole in the fence, and he begins to watch the parade. Well, his view is very limited. All he can see, of course, is what's right in front of him. That's all he can see. But if somehow that little boy could uh, manage to hitch a ride on the Goodyear blimp, for example, or, or maybe somebody brought him one of those fancy new things that go buzzing up in the air. What do you call those things? Uh, uh, yeah, the, one of those. With a camera on it, let him see everything. Wouldn't it be great if he could be up there in the good year blimp? Then he could see the whole thing at the whole time. But you know, God doesn't need a good year blimp. God doesn't need a, a drone to see everything. He sees the whole thing from the beginning to the end. He sees it all at once. All we can see is our little view. That's all we've got. What's in front of us at the moment. God sees the whole thing. And nothing that God sees is in question. And so... Uh, God sees not only what is going on in our life, uh, he, he saw it before we saw it. Uh, he saw it before time began. He, he, he saw what has happened and what will happen. No wonder the psalmist said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. I can't even imagine how God can know all of these things about everybody. Yeah. We've got a great God. Amen. Yeah. God's foreknowledge. The second word then is the word predestined. The word predestined simply means to decide or decree beforehand. Uh, 
Romans 8, 28 then refers us to the purpose of God. And now this passage is giving us information about that purpose. And what does it say? God has predetermined that everyone that he foreknew would be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, nothing that has been settled in eternity will ever be annulled in time. Nothing has, that is done in heaven will ever be undone on earth. God foreknew and therefore God predestined. God put something in place. And that, that something was that those who believe in Jesus Christ then uh, would be in the next word, called. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that passage tells us that God calls us to salvation by the preaching of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's how God calls people to salvation. And so they had the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of God, but we also have the call of God and how that God calls us to salvation through the preaching of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that God's choice in us is fulfilled. And uh, that is that we give glory through the gospel to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He foreknew, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us. Now, the doctrine of justification has already been discussed at length in the book of Romans, but it means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. It is a legal decision, a legal verdict. We are justified not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore being justified by faith. Therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 goes on, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God, you see, has declared us righteous. This was not an acquittal. An acquittal. He did not declare us not guilty. Uh, just acquitted us. No, no, no. He made it as if we had never sinned. Justified. Just like Jesus. His righteousness has been placed upon us. And the last word is the word glorified. If there's one word that ought to thrill us, it's this one. Like all of these words, they're all in the aorist tense in Greek. You don't know what that means, so let me tell you. It refers to a completed or finished action at some point in time. It's not past. It is completed action. This means it's been done. And it is true of every born-again child of God. All five of these things are true of every person on this planet who is saved. If you take these passages, as many do, and try to project their meaning on to, somehow to lost people, as if God is describing his dealings with all of humanity, and so everything that is true of a saved person, they say, the very opposite must be true of a lost person. If God loves a saved people, then God must hate lost people. And, and, and that's the way it just gets worse from there. I'm not going to go through it all because that's not what this passage says. Uh, lost people are not in the discussion. He's talking about the people of God. 
and the suffering that we experience that is going to give birth to glory. And this is something we know. It is absolutely, verifiably, indisputably true. We know that all things are working together for good to them that love God. But how can you say that? Well, because God foreknew us. And he predestined us then to be conformed to the image of his son. He called us by the gospel. He justified us because we believed on him, therefore being justified by faith. And therefore we will be glorified. What does that mean in a practical sense? That means that everybody that God foreknew is going to be glorified. God is not going to lose even one of us. Not a one. Everyone, God has guaranteed it. Now, other passages might talk about the human side and and discuss uh, salvation from a human perspective, and many do. But this is talking about God's view. How do we know that the glory that shall be revealed in us is not even worthy to be compared with the sufferings that we now experience? How do we know? That all things are working together for good to God's to our to, uh, to to good for them that love God. How do we know? Because God has decreed this of us, and for all of those who are in Jesus Christ, He foreknew us, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. He called us by the gospel, by the Spirit. He justified us, declared us not guilty, and He then has glorified us. You see, God sees us as already glorified. It is as true of us as if it had already happened. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show forth the exceeding riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. From God's vantage point in heaven, he already sees our glorification. Remember that parade? Here we are stuck like the little boy, and all we can see is what we can see right in front of our little knothole in the fence. That's all we can see. But imagine if somehow maybe I've got a buddy on the other end, and he got to go to the parade, and, and I've got a walkie-talkie. What's up next? What's up next? What's up? What do we see next? And, and my buddy says, oh, I, I just saw the end. It just came by. It's a marching band. Sure enough, in a few minutes, here comes the marching band, just like my buddy said. Why? Because he could see it all. Uh, Folks, God has told us what the end of the parade is going to be. He sees it. It's not in question. It's not in doubt. It's glorification. Glorified. To understand Romans 8.28, you see, we have to understand that God has a plan, and he's working the plan, and that takes us all the way from his foreknowledge to our glorification, and we will not be lost along the way. And so we have then the explanation of the truth. Uh, We have the identification of the truth. And then we have the application. We'll start with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? This is an obvious application passage. 
So what do we say? What do we do with all this? What's this all mean to us? What should we say then to these things? Well, Paul's going to ask five questions. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Five great questions. And so as he makes the application, then these will serve as the way of framing his discussion of how this applies to us. What does this all mean to us? Well, first, there's a question I'm going to call the question about our protection. If God be for us, who can be against us? In one sense, it could be argued that if God is for us, almost everything else will be against us. The devil, the world system in which we live... No wonder that Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. No wonder Paul said that it's not that the sufferings of this present time. Yes, sufferings are given. We have a hostility against us, a world system that's against us. The flesh, our own flesh works against us. In a sense, we might say that everything is against us. And there's so many out there today who like to disparage and defame anybody who's a child of God. So who can be against us? Well, almost everybody but then the question is, does their opposition really matter? When you consider who's on our side, God's on our side. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul, everybody can. So what? If God's for us. If God's for us. If God, God is for us. I'm here to tell you folks tonight, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is for you. God is for you. Standing beside us tonight is the Lord of glory, the risen Jesus Christ. Living within us is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God. No opposition against us can possibly be eternally effective because his presence gives assurance of ultimate victory. It's a question then of our protection. There's a question then of our provision. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Paul said in Ephesians 1, Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings are in Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to eternal glory through Jesus Christ. All things pertaining uh, to life and godliness. This truth has often been illustrated by the birth of a child. When a baby is born and he's presented to his parents, one of the first things we do is we try to make sure that Everything is there. We want to look and see if they've got five fingers and, uh, on each hand and five toes on each foot. And uh, we want to make sure that the baby's all there. And it is a blessing when they are. They're not always. When they are, we say, thank you, God, 
Oh, it's a perfect child. Doesn't mean that baby's going to be without fault. And that baby will prove that to you before too long. <laughs> what that means is it's all complete. Now, the baby has absolutely no clue of what to do with any of that stuff. I've told you before, a, a baby is a loud noise on one end and no responsibility on the other. That's a, that's a baby. But the joy of parenting is we watch those precious little gifts from God discover their hands of feet. And before long, they're growing. They're getting stronger. They're able to use them. We work so hard to get them to walk and move their hands and feet and learn how to do what to do with them. And then we have to work so hard to get them to keep still. It's all part of controlling themselves as the baby grows in strength and coordination and knowledge and ability. I want you to know that when you were born again, folk, you got a perfect birth. There was nothing left out for you. It was all there. The whole process of spiritual maturity is just a lot like physical maturity. You have to grow and discover the things that God has given you. Know what it means, how it works, how to use it. You'd never figure it out on your own. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And so God has blessed us with everything that we need. All things pertaining to life and godliness. There's also then the question of our prosecution. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Paul had already talked about a great point about our justification in Romans 4 and 5. When he said, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. On what basis were we declared righteous? Justified by God on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ, on the basis of his work for us on Calvary, on the basis of his sacrifice for our sins. We have believed on Jesus Christ, and because of that, we've been declared righteousness. Listen, if we were justified on the basis of our goodness, if we ever stopped being good, we'd stop being justified. If we were justified on the basis of our works, then if we ever stopped working, <coughs> we'd stop being justified. For as long as I live, I'll remember a conversation I had with a man in Branson. He came to our church. He came over and over and over again. I talked to him over and over and over again about his salvation. I don't know why he kept coming to church. I guess he kept thinking something someday would happen. He'd been raised, you see, in a system where it was all about working. It's all about how many doors you knocked on. All about how many tracks you passed out. All about how many books that you gave. And only a certain number were actually going to get to go to heaven. And after a while, he had just given up. There were so many people who were doing so much more than he was. I, well, I, I could never outdo all of them. He, he, he lost hope. Oh, I tried so hard to try to tell him that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I tried. Somehow he could never get it in his mind. I hope he did. I lost track of him years ago, but I'll never forget all those conversations we had. 
You see, if we were justified on the basis of our works, then if we ever stopped working or if we didn't work enough, then our justification would be lost. If we were justified on the basis of our wealth, our fame, our good looks, if our circumstances ever changed, our justification would be lost. But there's several problems with that kind of thinking. Not the least of which is that unjustified is a legal and practical impossibility. <laughs> you see, we know that. Just we're, we're smart enough to know that here, even here in the, in the United States of America. I mean, if you're accused of a crime and you're found not guilty, you can't be tried for that crime again. You can't. It's called the principle of double jeopardy. Now, they can take you to court and take your money. But you can't be, you know, to be unjustified is a legal impossibility. God has declared us righteous according to law. God who knows everything we've ever done and everything we ever would do. God has declared us righteous. No charges, no accusation ever brought us against us then will stand. Because it's all under the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's good news. He asks a question then about our, our paraclete, our, our comforter. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, Jesus Christ is our comforter. We have another comforter, according to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, and so that while we have a comforter, an advocate who's with the Father, that's Jesus Christ the righteous. We have another one, and that is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. But the one who is our advocate that is with the Father, John tells us, is also the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so Paul reminds us of a simple truth. All judgment has been committed to Jesus Christ. There is only one who can judge us guilty. And by the way, that one is our defense attorney. He's the one who pleads our case. Now, when the judge is your defense attorney, yeah, that's a pretty good situation to be in. Then there's the question of our persecution. And that takes us all the way to the end of the chapter. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who or what can come between us and the love of God? Who can separate us? Who can, what can come between us? He considers a lot of possibilities. Possibilities, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's quite a list, isn't it? He begins with our emotional struggles. Tribulation, distress, or persecution. There are things then in the passage that speak of our physical suffering. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. 
He addresses spiritual issues. The biggest spiritual issues of all are life and death. We might think that's all a physical thing. It's not. Uh, You see, a, a, a person can be alive and yet still be dead according to biblical truth. You can be physically alive and yet still be dead. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Life and death, uh, true life and death, are intricately connected to knowing Jesus Christ as Savior or not. To be alive, truly alive, to have eternal life, is to be saved through Jesus Christ. And to suffer death, eternal death. It's only for those who refuse to believe on him. That's why Jesus could stand at the graveside of his friend and talk to his sisters and say, I'm the resurrection and life. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that believeth in me shall never die. Life and death are spiritual issues. There's spiritual application, both of them. He also addressed spiritual beings, angels, principalities, and powers. These are mentioned several times in Paul's writings, Ephesians 6, Colossians 2. If you want to read them later, make a quick note. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Colossians 2, he spoiled, Jesus did, the principalities and powers. So the spiritual issues, the spiritual beings, he mentions then things related to time. Uh, Things present, nor things to come. Nothing you're experiencing right now or nothing you will experience in the future will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You notice he doesn't mention the past. I think he knows that we know that the past is under the blood. (laughs) We know that. But we worry about the future. What's the future going to hold? Well, stop worrying. It's not going to separate you. It's not going to thwart the purpose and plan of God. You do remember, of course, that this whole passage is about how the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us so that nothing that's happening in your life right now or nothing that's going to come in the future is going to keep God's glory from being revealed in you eternally and victoriously. It's going to happen. It's already happening. So he mentions things related to time. He mentions things related to distance, neither height nor depth. We can't get high enough to get away from him or low enough. And he sums it all up with those great things, nor any other created thing. Nothing that has ever been created is capable of separating us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what does this mean to us practically It means that when we received Jesus Christ, God with him gave us all things and that there is nothing in this universe that can take away from us what God has given to us. That's what it means. God has promised that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. The sufferings of this present time, we know, we know, are just birth pains And because they're birth pains, though they are painful, we know it's going to bring forth something that's good. And what is good is that eternal glory with God through Jesus Christ. God has promised it, and it will happen. We are more 
than conquerors. Y'all think you don't know any Greek, but you do. You know a lot more than you think. One of the Greek words you all know is the Greek word Nike. Nike. I'm not counseling you or encouraging you to go buy Nike tennis shoes. I don't like them myself. Okay. I would be a Pia Flyer man if they still made them. I could be a Converse guy, but these days I'm all about new balance. I'm telling you, man, (laughs) those things feel good on your feet. Nike. The Greek word Nike means victory, and it's in this text. It's translated conquer. Conquer. What does it mean? It means we're going to be victorious. It means we win the victory. We are victorious. And all these things we are conquerors. But that's not what it said. It didn't just say victory. Because when Paul got to that point, victory was not a strong enough word. (laughs) So he added a prefix on it. The prefix that he used is another one that you know about. Especially if you've got kids. Hyper. (laughs) Hyper. Yeah. Another Greek word. Uh, but in this case, it doesn't. It, it, it changes that victory. See, it's not just a victory anymore. Now it is victory by an overwhelming margin. <laughs> uh, you see, we 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 think, man, it's going to be real close. But in the last two seconds, Christian's going to kick a field goal. We're going to win by one point. No, uh, uh-uh. that is not the nature of this. We have hyper victory. Uh, we have super victory. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. We are winning. We have victory by an overwhelming margin. You see what happens to us. We're not real careful. We will spend all of our life just looking at that knot hole. And all we can see is what's right in front of us. And there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of hardship. And I'm not making fun of any of that tonight because it is all very real. And you know it and I know it. We get a lot of bad news. A lot of bad things happen. A lot of difficulties. A lot of struggles. Life is full of it. And if we're not careful, we'll feel like we're doing anything but winning by an overwhelming margin. We'll lose sight of the fact that we don't look at the things that are seen. We'll we'll forget. We don't don't look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are unseen. The things that we see only by the eyes of faith. The things that we can see because God has promised it and because we know that God did not lie to us. We know that what God promised is absolutely true. Because we've received Jesus Christ... And God had a plan and purpose, and that purpose is that we would give him glory forever and ever and ever. And that purpose is going to be fulfilled. It will happen. And nothing that happens to you or me, nothing that could ever potentially happen to you or me, is going to stop that. Because you belong to Jesus Christ. You're his. And he is yours. And he that did not spare his own son. But freely delivered us, him up for us all. 
And he will with us freely give, with him, give us all things. It's glory to come. The question is, have you received God's offer of salvation? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? And are, you, are you living out that promise that he gave you? Because the way, you see, we make this Christian life work, one of the key ingredients is that we keep our eyes on the prize. We set our affection on things above. And we constantly, constantly remind ourselves we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Do you have that assurance tonight? If you don't, you can. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that promise can be just as true in your life tonight as it is in mine or any other person here, if you'll believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's stand together, please.